0: hey, it was like striking out with the bases loaded in the last at bat of the last inning of the World Series. Or it was like losing that make or break contract that you had been working on for months. Or it was like being rejected by a husband of 30 years for a younger woman or like filing bankruptcy on a dream that you had tried to turn into a business. This was a devastating loss, a bitter defeat. In fact, one of the fellas was so distraught, he walked off and killed himself. He hung himself. There were several hours there when the other guys felt like doing the same. Imagine digesting this huge slice of humble pie, Imagine a bitter pill sliding down the back of your throat. Imagine what it was like for Jesus' disciples to choke at that crucial moment and betray their Savior. Hey, for three and a half years, these men had been the recipients of Jesus' mercies. They had witnessed his wonders, they were privy to his teachings. These 12 men were the central focus of Jesus' attention. He had taught them. He had tutored these men. He took away their hopelessness and he enlisted them as lieutenants in his kingdom. Now their master is under attack. He's being assaulted by Satan. An angry mob from the temple has come to arrest him, to lynch Jesus. They're led by a betrayer from his own ranks. Suddenly Jesus is surrounded by a rabid rabid pack of religious pit bulls frothing with jealousy and prejudice. Hey, these Jews were the Ku Klux Klan in priestly robes. Jesus was in danger. If ever there was a time for his disciples to take a stand, this was it. If you had looked at anyone's wristwatch, it would have read, crunch time. But sadly, tragically, regrettably, None of these men that Jesus had taken under his wing dared to help Jesus shoulder his burden in his hour of need. Yes, Peter did a little sword swinging. but When Jesus didn't approve of his methods, his loyalty went up in smoke. And as Mark sums up, they all forsook him and fled. And trust me, this rejection was made worse by the boast that they had all uttered earlier that night. John remembers it well in the upper room at dinner with Jesus. He and the other disciples had declared their allegiance. We believe that you came forth from God. And that's when Jesus had told them, the hour is coming, yes, has now come, that you will be scattered, each to his own, and will leave me alone. Jesus knew their words were nothing but hollow boasts. And of course, no one's boast that night was haughtier, more self-confident, more determined, as were the words that rolled from the lips of an impulsive Peter. In Matthew 26, Jesus had warned his disciples, all of you will be made to stumble because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. Of course, that's when Peter answered and he said, even if all are made to stumble because of you. I will never be made to stumble. Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you that this night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. What ominous words. I'm sure there are athletes who can't enter a particular stadium without reliving a bitter defeat. Or divorcees who can't see the photograph of their former spouse without their blood pressure spiking a bit. Or victims of a crime who recoil in terror as they pass by the site of the attack or they see their attacker. And I am also sure that every time Peter heard the rooster crowed, he relived that awful agony of having abandoned his Lord. Peter probably hated roosters. It's interesting, Mark chapter 14, verse 50 tells us, Then they all forsook him and fled. But Mark adds a point that no other gospel writer mentions. He writes this Now a certain young man followed him, having a linen cloth thrown around his naked body. And the young men had laid hold of him, and he left the linen cloth and fled from them naked. Most commentators believe this young man was Mark himself. In the upper room where Jesus met with his disciples, that upper room probably belonged to Mark's family. And that night, a young Mark may have followed Jesus and his disciples out of the city to the Garden of Gethsemane. When Jesus was arrested, Mark tried to follow him again. But this time, he got too close to the angry mob, and a couple of soldiers grabbed him. When he shook himself loose... He lost his light robe that was covering him. Now naked as a jaybird, he fled away into the shadows of the night. In fact, those dark shadows were crowded that night with lots of guilty people who had abandoned Jesus. Imagine a young Mark shriveling, shivering, naked and cold. Now he's afraid to come out into the open. Hey, he's too ashamed to even go back home. Though we speculate this young man was Mark, I believe there's good reason God kept him nameless. For in a figurative sense, this young man is me, and he's you. He's all of us who have ever abandoned Jesus. We tried to follow him, we were clothed in our own thin cloak of piety and devotion. But when temptation and fear caught hold of us, it exposed the inadequacy of our righteousness and the frailty of our faith. We too tucked tail and ran and fled away. Yeah, the nameless and the naked young man in this story is actually me and you. Have you ever felt defeated? Just defeated. This spring, my oldest son is coaching t-ball. I'm helping him out. I've become the designated pitcher. And though this season is more than half over, our team has yet to win a game. (laughs) No, it's just T-ball, mind you, but it's still depressing. Everybody's getting to that place where we're starting to get bombed, you know. We're wondering if we will ever win a game. Have you ever felt defeated by life or by temptation that won't let go? or by Satan, or perhaps have you been defeated by yourself? I mean, are you your own worst enemy? Have you been shooting yourself in the foot? In soccer, there's a term every defenseman hates to hear. I mean, they cringe when it's mentioned. The term is own goal. It's the goal accidentally scored by the defense. It's when a defender kicks the ball into his own net And here's my question. Have you ever kicked an own goal? Do you keep defeating yourself through your own fears or doubt or lusts or lack of resolve? Jesus has millions of followers and you and I are among them. But how often has our Lord stood alone and abandoned? There have been times when you and I weren't willing to come out and stand next to him. We've hid hid in the shadows, naked and nameless. On the night before Jesus was crucified, all his disciples forsook Jesus and ran away. The flock was scattered. Everyone fled. No one stood their post. It was an utter, bitter, embarrassing defeat. Times 12. What happened to the 12 disciples between Thursday night and Sunday morning? We're not sure. Their whereabouts and activities have vanished from the record. And since the disciples themselves wrote the Gospels, it's probably a deliberate omission. I mean, no soldier brags about what he did while he was AWOL. Only the activities of two disciples get highlighted. In Luke chapter 22, verse 62, we're told that Peter went out and wept bitterly. He convulsed with tears. And then in Matthew 27, verse 5, we're told that Judas threw down the silver pieces in the temple and departed and went and hanged himself. It's my assumption that what the other disciples did was somewhere in between. The tears these grown men shed, the shame that they suffered, the enormous guilt that they bore, But it's interesting, by Sunday evening, everyone but Judas came back, back from despair, back from the edge of hopelessness, back from the graveyard of guilt, back from those shadows of condemnation. In those three days, some of the disciples might have gone home. Some of them might have gone fishing. A few might have gotten drunk. But everyone disappeared into hiding. And yet somehow when we get to Sunday evening, all the disciples, except Judas, were back. They reassembled in the upper room where they had eaten the Last Supper with Jesus. Trust me, they were badly beaten. Their grit was gone. Their courage had been shaken. Their faith had wilted and it was hanging on by a thread. They were far from intact. They were just back. And the question arises, what was it that brought them back? Well, certainly part of it were the rumblings of a resurrection. I mean, so-and-so had told so-and-so who had heard it from so-and-so who had talked to the women who were at the tomb. Their testimony had gotten back to these deflated and doubting disciples. But at this point, the disciples were far from convinced by what they'd heard. For them, it was still a rumor. They were no doubt curious. They hoped it was true. But could they really believe something so daring? I mean, they saw him die. How could he now be alive? Mark 16 verse 14 comments, Afterward, Jesus appeared to the eleven, as they sat at the table. And he rebuked their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they did not believe those who had seen him After he had risen. See faith was not the disciples initial reaction. Earlier on. They were hesitant. And suspicious. And skeptical. But they still came back. It's interesting that though initially. They doubted the truth of the resurrection. The mere possibility of it. Was enough to bring them back. And this happens today. It happens every Easter. In churches all over the world non-Christians and nominal Christians who usually would never think of coming to church do so on Easter Sunday. The resurrection awakens hope. A resurrected Savior has authority and credibility and drawing power. Folks with a slim, meager devotion the rest of the year who rarely stand up for Jesus, who spend far more time in the shadows than they do in the light, still cast a hopeful eye to the resurrection at Easter time. People who might struggle to believe in Jesus' resurrection with their heads are still mysteriously drawn to it with their hearts. It has amazing attraction. I read where in 2015, more Americans did a Google search on the word church the week leading up to Easter Sunday than any other week of the year. There's something about Easter that brings us back. There's something about the resurrection that keeps us coming back. I imagine it's the obvious. Though wracked with problems and dysfunction, the modern world we live in provides the illusion that it has the answer to everything. Science is now the Savior. That is, until we're forced to face death. Here's where the the boasts of science grow silent. It has no answer in the face of death. Larry King of talk show fame is 83 years old, and apparently he's obsessed with death. He takes four human growth hormone pills every day in an attempt to delay the inevitable. When he does die, he has arranged for his body to be frozen until the doctors can come up with a cure for what killed him. He admits that cryogenics is nuts, but he says this, at least it gives me a shred of hope. And we all need that hope, don't we? Life is impossible without hope. The famed atheist Christopher Hitchens, he debated Christians on the existence of God. He was once challenged to read The words of Jesus in John chapter 11, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. At that particular time, Hitchens was suffering from cancer. Someone asked him what he thought of the words of Jesus. And in a moment of candor, Hitchens commented, I admit that they are not without appeal to a dying man. This is why Jesus' resurrection remains mankind's greatest hope, for we are all dying men and women. Jesus stared death in the face. Jesus took on our enemy. Jesus did what no one else has done. He conquered death, and He promises eternal life to everyone who trusts in Him. No one with any credibility doubted His resurrection when it happened, and for centuries since, Men of all persuasions and intellects and races and ethnicities have found hope in Jesus' signature miracle. His resurrection is still the best answer to our biggest problem. Even 2,000 years later, people don't gather together to sing, the stock market is risen, it is risen indeed. (laughs) Or the dollar has risen, it has risen indeed. Or new home sales have risen. They have risen indeed. No, no, no. For centuries in times of distress and hardship and crisis, people have found comfort in the refrain, Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. For if he has conquered death, then there is no problem that Jesus can't handle. And it was this hope that brought the disciples back that Sunday afternoon. Just the thought that Jesus was alive provided His disciples the renewed hope that they lacked. If this was true, everything could be different. Today we live in a predominantly secular and pluralistic culture. And yet people are still mesmerized by and attracted to the message of Jesus' resurrection. And it brings them back. It brings you back. Despite our embarrassing failures, despite our devastating defeats, despite our spiritual lapses, we come back. Not intact, but we come back. Maybe you're not a strong believer. You're just a wisher, a hoper. Yet you're here today out of respect, perhaps. Maybe you're here out of intrigue or even curiosity. If that's the case, you're not unlike those disciples who were in the upper room. They too were doubters, but they came back. Yet it wasn't just the possibility of a resurrection that encouraged the scattered disciples to reassemble. If you didn't know Jesus and all you'd heard was the person that you had abandoned and cursed and rejected and denied and had left to die had now returned from the dead, hey, you might not want to go back. You might be worried that Jesus had risen from the dead to exact some revenge. That he's back to get even with the deserters and with the betrayers and the traitors, namely you. You might think that if you didn't know Jesus. But the disciples, they knew him. And they marveled how time and time again... Jesus was ready and willing to take back the people that others were so willing to discard. That woman caught in adultery. He took her back. That swindling tax collector. That wild-eyed demoniac who the townsfolk had banished to the caves outside the city. The dirty lepers who no one else would touch. The prostitute who'd been inhabited by seven demons. That Roman soldier who cried out for help that out-of-control son and his exasperated father. Jesus took them all back. Not one of them did Jesus turn away. Without a receipt, without the original packing, even if the goods were now damaged or if the shoes had been worn off the carpet, Jesus still took them back. The disciples knew that Jesus was always willing to take us back. I'm sure the disciples reasoned if Jesus had done the unthinkable, if he had truly conquered death, if he really was alive, there was hope for their forgiveness. That's why all day long that Sunday, defeated disciples, they staggered back to the upper room. Rumors of a resurrection drew them out of their hiding places. Hopes of restoration brought them back together. Don't misunderstand, not everyone who gathered that day in the upper room believed in the resurrection, not yet, but they met the prerequisite. They still hoped. They hoped. You see, this was the difference between the 11 disciples and Judas. They all denied the Lord. They all betrayed the Lord. They failed. They succumbed to their fears. They all were confused and felt miserable afterwards. But all the disciples except Judas... Gave hope a chance. Hope faded and flickered, but it stayed alive. Judas, though, hung himself because he lost hope. Once a man, he climbed to the roof of the apartment high rise where he lived, and from there he jumped to his death. Friends and family all tried to make sense of his actions, but it was the building's janitor who offered the best explanation. The old janitor was quoted as saying, when a man has lost God, there ain't nothing to do but jump. Hope in Jesus' resurrection and hope in their own restoration is what brought the disciples back. It's been said the most profane word in the English language is hopeless. When you say a situation or a person is hopeless, you are slamming the door in God's face. The disciples were like the little leaguer. A bystander asked him the score of the game. The little guy answered, he said, we're losing 18 to nothing. The man says, Whoa, I'll bet you're discouraged. The kid answered, why would I be discouraged? We haven't even batted yet. The disciples were in this kind of deep, dark hole. Spiritually speaking, it was 18 to nothing. Their failure and their guilt tried to shut the door, but hope brought them back. Mark 16 tells us that when the angels greeted the women at the empty tomb and announced that Jesus had risen, they gave them special instructions. The angels told the ladies, but go and tell his disciples and Peter. I love that. Isn't it interesting that Jesus was already thinking about his discouraged, deflated disciples? He wanted them to know that he had risen, and especially Peter. No one's hopes had been more dashed than Peter's. They'd all sinned and fallen short, but Peter's boast had set himself up for the biggest fall. Max Lucado comments on this passage. Even the angels wanted this distraught disciple to know it wasn't over. They instructed the women. Be sure to tell Peter he gets to bat again. Reminds me of the missionary who lived next to the racing track. Gamblers would walk from town to the track right by his apartment. One day from his balcony he noticed a disheveled fellow shuffling along along the sidewalk. The missionary had just received a $100 bill from a financial supporter back in the States. He figured the man on the sidewalk needed the money more than him. And so he put it in an envelope he wrote on the front an encouraging message, just two words, don't despair. And then he took it down and he gave it to the man. Well, the next day, this bum, this same guy, he knocked on the missionary's door. And he handed him $600. He was surprised. What's this. The fellow answered, don't despair, paid five to one. <laughs> well, if you don't despair... If you don't allow your sin and your guilt and your failure to cause you to give up, if you come back to the risen Savior, he will reward you with blessings that pay not just five to one, but times a million. Were the disciples discouraged? Of course they were. Did they have their doubts? They were riddled with doubt. Were they fearful? Their locked doors were testimony to their terror. Did the disciples feel like a failure with a capital F? That's exactly how they felt. Did they feel embarrassed and condemned and ashamed and guilty? Yes, but despite it all, hope brought them back. All day long, disciples were wandering into that upper room. Oh, They locked the doors behind them and they bolted the windows and they spoke in hushed voices lest their whereabouts get detected and they get reported to the authorities. And oh, there were no more bold statements of belief or daring acts of courage, not yet. Sermons and stands will come later. At first, all they did was come back. And yet because they acted on the little bit of hope they had left, and because they walked out of those shadows, a miracle occurred. John 20 verse 19 records it. When the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled, for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, peace be with you. Obviously, the resurrected Christ was no longer subject to the material restrictions and the physical limitations that confine a normal human. Jesus walked through the wall. If I tried to walk through a wall, I'd flatten my nose. Yet Jesus did so with no repercussions. You could say Jesus was the first person to utilize a keyless entry. Our Lord didn't need keys. He didn't need doorknobs. He didn't need hinges. He didn't need push plates to enter a room. Neither doors nor walls can keep Jesus from people who are hoping in him. This passage in John 20 is so pregnant with meaning for you and me. These disciples have come back. Their faith is far from intact. They're just back. And they're surrounded by walls, walls of fear. They're afraid of the Jews and they're afraid of their own safety and for their future. And they're afraid of repeating their mistakes. They're worried and they're fearful and they're guilt ridden. No one in that room could even look the other person in the eye. They felt so guilty. Their shame was as thick as a wall. These disciples were barricaded in, not just behind literal doors and walls. They were trapped behind spiritual walls as well. Yet here's what you don't want to miss. Jesus appears to his disciples in their midst despite the locked doors and the thick walls. No one has ever manufactured a wall or a door that can keep Jesus away from the person who comes back to him and who hopes in him. I love the line in verse 19, when the doors were shut where the disciples had assembled. That's when Jesus appeared to him. When the doors were shut. The door of death couldn't hold Jesus in and the door of failure couldn't keep Jesus out. The risen Lord appeared to these men who had locked themselves behind shut doors. This was not a group brimming with faith, praying to heaven with their doors open, with their windows open. Rather, Jesus appeared to fearful, frightened, naked, and nameless disciples. But apparently none of that mattered. Jesus knew he would fix them. All that mattered to Jesus was they were back. And you got to love the first words that fall from Jesus' lips when he speaks to these men. Peace be with you. Oh, boy. If it had been me appearing to the disciples and they had treated me like they had treated Jesus, I would have opened up with a few I told you so's or a couple of how could you's or several you should have listened to me. I might have just looked Peter square in the eye and said, (laughs) (laughs) cock-a-doodle-doo. But not Jesus. The first statement out of our Lord's mouth to these shame-faced disciples is peace be with you. In other words, guys, it's okay. I've forgiven you already. We're cool now. We can start over. Everything is going to be all right. And you can imagine how these disciples felt when Jesus delivered his greeting. They went from feeling lower than a snake's belly to being on top of the world. When Jesus said, peace be with you, suddenly the disciples were engulfed in a tidal wave of relief and pardon and commitment and love and peace. And that's when Jesus goes to work rebuilding their shattered faith John tells us what he did immediately. Now, when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. He let them inspect his scars. He proved to them that he was real. See, he went to work dispelling their doubts, freeing them from their fears, energizing them for the battles to come. And it took just 50 days to transform these disciples. He turned them from wimps to witnesses in just 50 days. Read the first chapters of the book of Acts. And you'll find the same men who were locked behind shut doors in John 20, boldly walking through open doors in Acts chapter 2. Cowards became courageous. Author John Stott once observed, Perhaps the transformation of the disciples of Jesus is the greatest evidence of all for the resurrection. I would agree. Jesus answered their questions. He removed their doubts. He assuaged their fears. He filled them with power. And he did it all in a few weeks. It didn't take him long. And he can do the same with us. Jesus specializes in restoration. Guys, no one comes to Jesus all put together. With a faith completely intact. We're all rebuilds. Despite your sin and failures, in a relatively short time, Jesus can restore you. He can revive your life. The issue this morning is not, have you failed Jesus? We've all failed our Lord at some point. We all have. We're all shaky and shifty and weak-kneed and ill-tempered and guilt-ridden. But if Jesus had mercy enough to forgive the disciples who forsook him in crunch time, He has mercy enough to restore us. The issue is not do you have it all together. It's not are you intact. The issue is have you come back? Have you come out of the shadows? Have you come out from hiding? Have you come out from wherever you've been? Jesus didn't even ask them where they'd been or what they'd done. He was just happy they were back. Actually, he already knew where they had been and all about their behavior, and he had decided to forgive them anyway. So Jesus says to them, Peace be with you. What marvelous words. All Jesus asked of them was for them to come back, come back to him. to be loved by him, to be forgiven by him, to be restored by him. As with the disciples, Jesus is willing to walk through walls to get to you and bring you peace, even if those walls are your own fears and doubts and failures. Let me close this morning with the last line of verse 20. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And you will be too. Jesus is alive. He is even here with us today. And he is calling your name. He's not worried about the shape you're in. He knows he can fix that. He can make you fit in no time. He's just glad you're back. And he wants to reveal himself to you. If you open up your heart to him today, he'll bring you a peace that you've never known before. You can leave today like the disciples on that first Easter Sunday evening, glad that you're back and happy that you've seen the Lord.